Hello everyone, and welcome to the Naturopathic Times. I'm your host, Katerina Meister. And I'm your co-host, Stephanie Yakupedia. Today we're recording virtually in San Diego, and our guest today is a licensed naturopathic doctor. Her main areas of focus include homeopathy, behavioral neuroscience, and mental health, specifically in depression and anxiety. Please welcome our guest, Dr. Genevieve Price. Thanks for the introduction, Katerina. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Price. I'm happy to be here. Really wanted to share more about naturopathic medicine to the public. We felt like there was a huge lack in that, and we thought you'd be the perfect candidate to kind of talk to us about how you, first of all, found naturopathic medicine, and then how you developed these areas of focus in mental health. Sure. So the way I found naturopathic medicine, really, it I sort of just fell into the lap of naturopathic medicine, so to say. <laughs> so I, I had a pre-med curriculum in undergrad. My major was in behavioral neuroscience with a minor in anthropology. So I was always interested in mental health specifically, and I did plan on going down the conventional medical route. But then I had done certain internships in behavioral neuroscience and um, psychology. And what I found was the, I was exposed really to the conventional approach to treating mental health and how it was very limiting and didn't really offer people the, and patients, the solutions that they need a lot of the time, you know, Mm -hmm. conventional medicine, pharmaceuticals for treating depression, anxiety, and other mood disorders are helpful for treating maybe half of the population. But then you have the other half of cases that are considered treatment resistant cases where they don't respond to first, second, and third line pharmaceutical interventions. And they're, they're still struggling. So what, what else is there, you know, and that's where I looked into more holistic therapies. And I just did a Google search, I think, for holistic (laughs) doctor, you know, programs. And I, I found, I found Bastier. And then I happened also to connect with a few NDs that were local to New York and just had conversations with them and kind of just fell in love with the medicine after that and did a little bit more research and applied to, to Bastier. And then that was the only school that I applied for in San Diego. And, and that was that I, I just, it kind of just fell into my lap and I never, I never looked back. Oh, wow. So what sparked your interest in the first place of mental health while you're an undergrad? I really find neuroscience fascinating. And I, I actually had been um, doing, I, I had been doing like a neuroscience internship when I was in high school for like my senior project and in high school. And I, I had a, I developed um, a connection with that lab and had a mentor there where I continued research while I was um, in undergrad and it kind of just happened organically. I really find psychology in general and behavioral neuroscience fascinating. Just learning about, you know, what makes people tick, why people act the way they do and why, um, you know, what is it that causes people mental suffering? That's always been, been interesting to me, you know, physical ailments, there's usually a quicker fix, but with mental health, it's so complex and really treating the root cause of mental illness involves using a wide range of different therapies and really looking at the whole person. So Mm -hmm. um, for me, it was kind of just a a fascinating thing and also the applicability in terms of the need in in our population for alternative therapies for mental health. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's, we're finding that there's a an underpinning, like a psychological underpinning to a lot of 
physical chronic illnesses now too. So it's interesting that you get that whole well-rounded mind-body medicine approach in your practice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, treating the mind also involves treating the body. And that's the whole thing with neurobiology and neurophysiology and treating underlying neurotransmitter deficiencies, underlying underlying genetic issues, hormone imbalances that could be contributing, micronutrient imbalances, uh, you know, the, the whole gamut. So it involves treating the body, but then also treating the mind. And where where does that where is that distinction? I, I think it's intertwined, which is kind of where Eastern medicine comes in, where mind and body are literally one and the same. So when you were in that lab and then experiencing all of this and experiencing the disadvantages of conventional medicine and the other half of the population not really getting treatment, what exactly did they do in that situation in the conventional model for those patients that it wasn't really working for them? And like, what did you see that you could be doing, I guess? Yeah, so um, one study that I was involved in in particular was using um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is um, for, for treating the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. And, you know, that that is, um, you know, more considered more of an integrative therapy. But, uh, you know, that was a that was a research study in in clinical populations and through that research study, which was taking place at the New York State Psychiatric Institute, I was exposed to, you know, patient populations in general. And it it was, it's a psychiatric institute. So it was, it was, you know, they had inpatient as well as outpatient services, and it was very severe mental illness. And usually there was, there was no digging into what's the root cause, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what, what are their genetic predispositions? What are underlying neurotransmitter imbalances before jumping towards a therapy, right? You know, doing some objective testing to really determine what's the most effective therapy for this person based on their individualized presentation, their individualized health history. And because really the, the causes are multifactorial and they vary from person to person. So, you know, treating someone with an SSRI, which only works on one neurotransmitter and one mechanism is not going to work on everybody, right? So mm-hmm. it really, it was just, um, you know, lacking the, the breadth and depth that is necessary for treating complex mental illness. That's fascinating, honestly. Can you talk a little bit more about the neurotransmitter testing? I was just talking to my friends about this, and they were completely unaware that you would test your neurotransmitters. Absolutely. So this is a urine test. So someone urinates into 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 a cup a few for a few samples and it'll assess different neurotransmitter metabolites which are breakdown products and then neurotransmitter precursors which are building blocks of neurotransmitters and through looking at this really comprehensive neurotransmitter testing where you're basically looking at all steps in the equation of neurotransmitter production, you can really see where there's a specific issue. So if someone is lacking in a certain building block, how can we replete those building blocks, whether it's through vitamin therapy, whether it's through amino acid therapy, whether it's through herbal medicine. And then if someone has issues with the metabolites or the breakdown products, in what ways are they not appropriately metabolizing their neurotransmitters? And then we can intervene in a very targeted way in very specific parts of the neurotransmitter production and breakdown pathways. And I find that you know treating someone based on those results 
leads to, to better improvement in terms of addressing their mood. And, you know, this is, I, I use mostly nutraceuticals, homeopathy, and herbal, me herbal medicine, but this can also afford avenues for very targeted pharmaceutical intervention too, because oftentimes with pharmaceuticals, there's absolutely no testing done. There's a first line right. treatment, which is usually an SSRI. There's a second line treatment, which, which can vary depending on, on the provider and the person's pre unique presentation. And then there's a third line therapy. And then after that, you're kind of shooting in the dark. And with each of these different medications, as, as many people know, many medical students know, it, it works on one or two pathways. It doesn't really address, you know, everything that could be potentially causing the person's depression or anxiety. So that's where this sort of testing really comes in handy to find out exactly what the, the root issue, if it is neurotransmitters. And you know what, sometimes it's not and sometimes that's what that's why you need to do the test to find out that it's not a neurotransmitter issue. Um, giving someone neurotransmitter replacement in terms of mm. supplements or giving them a medication is not going to really help them. We need to work on something else, whether it's the electrical activity of their brain, which is another therapy that I work on with microcurrent neurofeedback, or it's an underlying hormone or micronutrient imbalance. Have you found patients that have come in that have been prescribed a pharmaceutical for whatever mental health condition and found out that they don't need any sort of neurotransmitter pharmaceutical? I see that all the time. So wow. a lot of the patients that come to me have tried a wide range of different pharmaceutical interventions, usually, you know, upwards of three and have not found results or have not felt better even after a course of say two to three months on each therapy each wow. medication mm -hmm. um, and then we find out there's an underlying hormone imbalance and then treating the hormone imbalance actually leads to better results and as well as some other things like you know different nutrition as well as homeopathics i give homeopathics to almost all of my patients just mm -hmm. because i find that it really helps to bring everything together in terms of the other therapies and stimulates the, the body's innate ability to heal itself so that all of those other therapies can really be more effective and more long lasting yeah how did you get into loving homeopathy with treating mental health conditions? Mm. Um, so I'll start with talking about how I got into homeopathy in the first place. I had, you know, an excellent mentor named Nazanin Vasigi, who <laughs> is faculty at, at wow. Bastyr University and is still a, still a mentor of mine. And I really mm -hmm. fell in love with homeopathy as a student clinician at Bastyr back when I was still a student on her shift. And I just really valued, for one, the connection that I made with patients through homeopathic intakes. You learn so much about a person through a homeopathic mm -hmm. intake probably more intimate information than a family member or a spouse would have, you know, with a patient from a homeopathic intake, because mm -hmm. you really get to the root cause of what's causing the, their distunement, what's causing their imbalance, what's causing their suffering, right? And these are mm -hmm. things that you don't really get from just a general medical intake. And, you know, by really identifying what is the root cause or the person's unique individualized presentation of their distunement or imbalance, really 
the home homeopathy I found to be really effective with my patients. So, and then when when treating mental health, it's just so important with homeopathy because with homeopathy, those mental emotional symptoms are some of the most important symptoms in terms of prescribing, right? Because it points to where the person's imbalance is, and you and really like from the lens of homeopathy as compared to all allopathy as a contrast with homeopathy, there's this innate um, this body, your, your body has an innate wisdom and this innate ability to heal itself. And homeopathy mm -hmm. just provides that signal for the body to heal. And really, I, I really valued as well this, this viewpoint and this approach to, to treating the human body, because what I don't want is my patients to be on, you know, 10 different supplements for the rest of their life either. So really I provide the supplementation to bring a person back into balance in addition to the homeopathic. And then the hope is that with appropriate lifestyle and nutrition interventions and appropriate stress management, you know, support systems, the depression and anxiety will be at bay for most of their lives unless there's an instigating, you know, factor like a stressful life event, for example, in which case, mm -hmm. you know, initiating more therapies. But really the, the goal of treatment should be to identify the root cause not right. not green allopathy yeah i was just gonna say that's where we start to see people prescribing supplements as medications and that's really not what naturopathic medicine is it's not really what it's about it's more about finding the root cause like you just mentioned and a lot of the times that's a deep emotion or something that the person's holding on to or um something similar to that uh, is there something that convinced you that homeopathy works? Was there like a moment for you that, I mean, I know there's a lot of doubt in it and I just didn't know if there was ever a moment of doubt for you and if you had that doubt like somehow erased just by your own clinical experience. Yes, there is actually a moment that comes to mind straight away, and it was actually the first time I ever was a primary student in that I, I was the one conducting the, the medical intake for a homeopathic case. And this patient had severe anxiety, and we prescribed uh, an individualized constitutional, or not rather, classical remedy for this patient, and his anxiety like dissipated after wow. two, two dosages and no. then he he did re-enter into different bouts of anxiety throughout the course of you know of his treatment because of perpetuating stressors in, in his life and the homeopathic you know remedy had to be modified over time but I I remember that moment vividly and that was almost um you know four years ago wow yeah. did he need convincing at all too because I feel like some patients came in for homeopathy and they're not entirely sure if it's going to work, and then it works, and then they're hooked. <laughs> I I do that, and I I think that's almost like a nocebo effect, as uh, in in contrast to a placebo effect, right? Where mm. someone takes something and they think it's going to work. Um, there are a lot of individuals out there that will be prone to a nocebo effect, and that's usually due to disillusionment with the medical system, where mm. they've tried a lot of therapies that have not worked. And then they enter into therapy with the underlying belief that nothing will help them. And that's something that I do see. And it does warrant a little bit more, you know, counseling, a little bit more developing a therapeutic relationship and alliance with the patient so that, you know, it, they develop trust in you and they develop trust in your therapy so that we're counteracting that nocebo effect, that, that, that underlying belief that nothing will help. 
Yeah. But I do think that homeopathy can counteract that. Just, just for a sake of um, generality, not necessarily specific by individual person, but what are some of the more common rem- naturopath or homeopathic remedies that you do use for ho- mental health? Ooh, that's a tough question. I would say, I'm just going to rattle it out based on my intuition and what remedies come to mind first, but let's talk depression remedies first. My specialty is depression and anxiety. So let's talk depression first. Um, Natmer, Ignatia, Causticum, a lot of the grief remedies, Aurum Metallicum, Phosphoric Acidum, that's all that comes to mind for depression. Oh, sepia. Mm-hmm. especially when there's a, um, a hormone imbalance, especially in women, a menstrual, you know, component to the, to the depression or anxiety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are some depre- depression, common depression remedies. That's by no means comprehensive. In terms of anxiety, aconite, arsenicum, nux vomica, phosphorus, lycopodium, gelsemium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot. Yeah, there is. And the list goes on. Yeah. Um, another one for depression is sulfur. I've given that for depression before. The The characteristic for sulfur is feeling weary of life. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm sure, yeah, many people listening can relate to that phrase yeah. at some point in their life of just feeling weary of life. With sulfur, there's this um, almost this existential crisis, feeling weary mm. of life. I feel that is so relevant to today, especially with the pandemic and everything. Has your mental health cases increased over, have you been able to treat people during this time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've been doing a mix of in-person and video consults since the start of the pandemic in March. Um, I would say most people still are coming in in person because they do value that face-to-face interaction that they're not getting as often as they used to when before the whole pandemic and the, the quarantine started. Um, and I am seeing a rise in uh, depression and anxiety. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not, it's not a good thing, but my business is actually busier during the pandemic because mm-hmm. of just yeah. how, much, how much everyone is struggling. And yeah. a, these are a lot of individuals that have longstanding major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. And because of the stressors of the pandemic and because of, you know, the feelings of loneliness, the feelings of being cut off from community and other Mm -hmm. coping strategies, people are um, prone to an episode, right? Given their predisposition and their, and their health history. So I have been seeing a lot more cases of, of mood disorders. What do you recommend for people listening that, maybe aren't seeing someone right now for their, maybe they don't even realize that they have anxiety, but maybe listening to this, they're realizing, oh, maybe I do actually have some kind of depression during this time, or I am feeling anxious. How would you help them become aware of those types of body signals? And then also, what would you recommend for those people? Yeah, I mean, I would say, number one, uh, a mindfulness practice. A mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have to be meditation. It doesn't have to be a a sort of practice where you sit down in silence and close your eyes. It's any mindfulness practice where you're really just focused on how you're feeling, the sensations that you're feeling in your body. Um, And 
I, I really encourage people to have a mindfulness practice every day. And for a lot of my patients suffering from depression and anxiety, especially during COVID where people's routines have been thwarted, people's environments have changed to be solely online, where they're not leaving their house as much, they're not interacting with people through the same day-to-day you know, interactions that they used to have. And it's it, part of it is also developing structure, right, with the mindfulness practice. So what I re- do recommend to a lot of my patients is sleeping early, waking up with the sun preferably, and then getting outside first thing in the morning. And for some people that's sitting outside drinking a cup of tea, for others it's drinking a cup of coffee, although I often do discourage coffee if someone is having, you know, anxiety. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And then just just sitting and having that time to themselves first thing in the morning. And that, that helps to develop a routine and it sets a precedent for the whole day. And what it also does for people is it gives them a feeling of control and that's really important Mm -hmm. when addressing mental health because a lot of the time people feel helpless they feel like they don't have control over their mental state and they don't have control over their environment and especially now with covid where so many things are uncertain there's so many question marks people are are struggling with this sense of uncertainty and this loss of control like Mm -hmm. i don't have control over you know my kids going to school you know i don't have control over whether i'm going to lose my job. I don't have control over, you know, my family's health and my health. There's just so many question marks and it brings up a lot of fear and uncertainty. And what can really help to counteract that is finding ways that we can narrow in on things that we can control. And what what we can control are our habits. And part right. of that is a, is a mindfulness practice, you know, first thing in the morning. And, that, and I recommend it first thing in the morning because it already sets that precedent that you're in control of your day, you're in control of your mood. And really it can go, it can go in any way you want it based on your, your own choice. So, so that's like a, that's something that I recommend to everyone, regardless of, you know, whether they're experiencing depression or anxiety and the tendency, you know, especially in our society, when we're dealing with mental suffering is to distract, right? And what mindfulness does is it really helps us to observe what we're feeling. And for a lot of people, that's very difficult. Because when you're when you're it it can sometimes bring awareness to things that have we've either either been in denial of or we haven't brought to conscious awareness. But it's it's important. Right. Because if we don't address it, if we don't bring it to conscious awareness and and try to hash it out, then it leads to other signals in the body. You know, a lot of people with depression have chronic fatigue exhausted. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they have aches Mm -hmm. and pains in their body. Um, You know, whether it's stomach pains, that's very common. Um, Migraines are also common, Um, you know, and and fatigue is really the most common. And then individuals with with anxiety, um, you know, it's not it's not normal to constantly be feeling tightness in your chest or short of breath, you know, but Mm -hmm. that's some of those physiological signals that that our body gives us and tells us when we're feeling anxious or when we're in a state of fight or flight. And we we usually don't notice it because we're 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 so focused on going, going, going and distracting, distracting, distracting. Yeah. And that's why it's really good um, when we do um, do screening exams that we ask the physical symptoms, because a lot of people are not aware that they actually Mm -hmm. do have anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. That was really good advice, Dr. Price. And it's so applicable to every single person. Um. So for people that are really struggling or maybe people with 
I know you treat anxiety and depression, um, but even like ADHD, I do know that you offer neurofeedback at your practice. Um, could you talk a little bit more about what a session is like and why someone would come in for something like that? Absolutely. So I love neurofeedback. I've been seeing good results with it. And it does, you know, um, part of my interest in, in interested in neurofeedback initially was my was my background in neuroscience. And really, uh, you know, this whole aspect of mental health being about the electrical activity of our brain. So there's so much talk about like the biochemistry of our brain in terms of neurotransmitters. But the way our, the cells in our brain communicate with each other is through electrical impulses. So that's equally important. And it's often not looked at as much in the research. Of course, there's more research on these different electrical and magnetic therapies to address the brain. Um, and what the research is showing is that there are different functions in different areas of the brain. And there is decreased activity in those areas, right? So let's take the example of depression. Depression is usually associated with issues in certain areas of the frontal cortex of the brain, which actually sits right behind our forehead. Mm -hmm. And what, what neurofeedback does in those cases is it helps to activate those areas in the brain and develop what we call neuroplasticity, which is how our brain re responds to stress. And that translates to mental and emotional resilience. So stress is part of life, right? Some people, when they have a stressful event, they'll develop PTSD. Some people will develop depression. Some people will even develop psychosis. Some people will um, have their first psychotic break with schizophrenia, um, mm -hmm. you know, after a stressful event. Everyone has different ways of, of responding, but the whole key is that when the stressful event is removed, how well can we bounce back from that stressor and return to that state of peace, that state of parasympathetic, which is involved in rest and digest, that very calm state. And that's the whole basis of neuroplasticity, which is what these different electrical therapies work on. Um, how resilient can your brain be in the face of life's inevitable stressors? Mm -hmm. um, and the way microcurrent neurofeedback works in particular, that's the specific therapy that I use, is it uses uses an EEG signal, which measure, measures the electrical activity of your brain. And based on the EEG signals, where there's areas where the signal is a little bit too fast in terms of the frequency of, of the brain waves, it brings the brain waves back into balance by administering a very, very low voltage microcurrent. So this is actual electricity, but I call it almost um, like a homeopathic dosage of microcurrent. Mm. It's, it's by no means electrocuting your brain. This is an ECT like one flew over the cuckoo's yeah. nest if if people have yeah. <laughs> related to and remember remember that movie this is almost like homeopathic ect where it's a very very low voltage microcurrent that's actually trying to bring your brain waves back into a state of dynamic balance right um and really our our brain waves are supposed to be changing throughout the day i mean unless you're um you know a buddhist monk who's in solitude meditating all day life is going to bring its stressors but the mm -hmm. whole point is to develop our ability to bounce back so that those stressors don't lead um, to a stuck state when where we have a period or an episode of you know anxiety or depression where it's really hard to to get out of right so you see that with the neurofeedback that you do mm-hmm Yes. It's usually a combination of therapies and, yeah. you know, depending, depending on the person, um, I, I will of course like tweak, 
tweak my protocols. I won't do neurotransmitter testing on everyone. I won't do, you know, epigenetic neurotransmitter testing on everyone. Um, what I do find is that a lot of people respond quickly to neurofeedback and homeopathy combined. And then they don't always need all of those additional therapies in terms of supplements and, you know, nutraceuticals and herbal medicine. So yeah. I would, I would say like my first line is starting with the more gentle therapies, you know, the more least invasive, which is the neurofeedback and the, and the homeopathy. And then, you know, out, out branching from there, um, based on the patient's um, results, if they're, if they're not, you know, improving significantly enough, then I'll investigate the, the lab work to really determine if there's an underlying, um, you know, neurotransmitter imbalance. How often are those uh, sessions required or needed for the neurofeedback then? I would say it's, um, it's, it's every, it, it's twice a week to twice a month. So it depends on the person. Usually in the beginning, it is at least once a week until someone can get to a sort of baseline because it's really brain training. You know, we're trying to actually change how the pathways in our brain are firing. And that's something that takes practice. It's like a muscle, you know, developing those pathways. You know, if you're trying to do strength training and meet some sort of, you know, strength training goals, you're going to have to do a little bit more in the beginning, right? To start mm -hmm. to really strengthen those, those pathways in the brain. And then after, you know, usually it's after around 10 sessions once weekly, then the person can potentially switch to um, every other week. And then usually after a series of 20 treatments, the person only needs to come in once in a while for tune-ups if they followed, you know, all of the other therapies in terms of neurotransmitter optimization with nutraceuticals, herbal medicine, and botanical medicine, and then also mm -hmm. the, the homeopathy. And then also all of the mindful practice practices that really help to lay the foundation and lay the groundwork for all of these therapies to to take place. Right. So how does a person normally feel after a session then? Do they normally feel, do they feel any difference or is it Absolutely. Yeah. So most people feel a difference um, after the treatment and then, um, you know, like lighter or just like clearer or what is so it, de it depends on the treatment. So if someone is coming in for anxiety, I'll be giving a completely different treatment for someone with depression. And even, you know, two individuals with anxiety, I'll be giving different treatments based on what I see on their EEG signal. So mm -hmm. it's really um, not a one size fits all. It depends on the person. But I always check in with the person on how their week has gone, how they're feeling, you know, at that moment in office. And if they're feeling really restless and agitated, then I'll, I'll give them a very calming treatment. But if they're oh, feeling cool. really, really low, sad, down in the dumps, I'll give more of a wow. stimulating treatment where I'll work more on those areas in the frontal cortex, like I talked about, that are involved in, in depression. And then the person will leave feeling happy and blissful. Oh, wow. So you, phys you see these physical changes in office. You see the difference of before and after. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the patient does to too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow. Do you okay. also have children coming in for ADHD? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, so um, with ADHD, a lot of the research is, is actually pointing to um, the frontal cortex as well, where there's difficulty with areas in the frontal cortex, the area of the brain behind the forehead, in terms of inhibiting the, the rest of the brain. And this plays a role in impulsivity and intention. So you really need your frontal cortex to be functioning optimally so that you have um, appropriate impulse control and you're able to 
focus, right, and be motivated. And that's part of, you know, a lot of the issue with ADHD symptoms. And with ADHD, it usually involves, you know, treatment on the frontal cortex of the brain. And with with kids, you know, it's really neurofeedback and homeopathy, the combination of the two that work really well. I obviously don't give children a bunch of supplements. Right. And that isn't the goal anyways. I like that you do those things first. I was thinking about when you were mentioning how when you first saw these conditions in the conventional model and how you saw half of them being treated very well and then the other half not. As far as like this treatment, curious how these patients feel about this treatment versus what they've been through, I guess. Do you ever get comments, I've been through all of this and they try what you offer, the neurofeedback, and then they're like, oh my gosh, I wish I found this years ago or? Yeah, I would say like most patients do report that they're they're happy that they actually have encountered a therapy that works. Part of it too is also the therapeutic alliance and developing you know, relationships with, with patients by really understanding what the root cause of you know, their, their mood issues are. And you know, that's part of the, the healing process in itself. Um, and, then, um, and then also like, I do have patients that come in to see me um, and they don't wanna take medication and I recommend medication. Um, so right. it's not like medication it's not like there it's not like medication is this separate thing and then all my other therapies are another avenue it's it's just all of my other therapies really you know treat the the whole you know person and medication is sometimes a piece of that puzzle and i'll make that appropriate referral to a psychiatrist if if indicated um but there are a lot of individuals where medication is not going to help them it's going to lead to side effects and you know they're they're not going to feel better um and then that's where my therapies are more useful right okay that makes sense and I like that you incorporate both because then you're kind of integrating both sides and you're not only just using one avenue you're really using your brain and thinking what this individual person needs versus just you know doing one way or the other just because you like one or the more, more than the other type of thing and when these patients are at your office when they're in the machine, like, are they talking with you? Or is it like a quiet session where they're just laying there? Or what does that look like? Yeah, so they're sitting um, and they're they're talking to me. I'm talking to them, and part of that is also what builds that therapeutic rapport. I mean, I'm not yeah. a uh, you know I'm not a licensed therapist by any means, but I do a lot of um, coaching, you know, to to my patients suffering from mood disorders about different lifestyle and behavioral modifications that they can make in their lives while they're getting the neurofeedback treatment, and then they start incorporating that. Sometimes I check in on their homeopathic prescription and modify that prescription um, while they're getting the neurofeedback treatment um, you know and and I, I like the the more frequent follow-up yeah I was gonna say yeah it's a more intimate look on the patient and you can really see how they're doing and see how they're reacting to different things absolutely and I mean you know sometimes it's just the neurofeedback treatment and then we talk a little bit about different lifestyle modifications like you know let's try this you know grounding exercise let's try this breathing exercise let's try this body scan you know and then sometimes it's modifying the homeopathic prescription right based on Mm -hmm. how they're how they've responded or you know adding in like an herbal therapy so I do um, an intake and consult while they're hooked up to the device Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's Mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah. Cool. 
Okay, so you did talk about how genetics can play a really big role in a person's mental state and how they're progressing. Um, and you can test for these genes. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So I do um, epigenetic testing for neurotransmitters. And then also um, the, the specific test looks at how well people are able to metabolize certain psychiatric drugs. Um, because there's there's two aspects to it. It's it's what are the neurotransmitter predispositions based on someone's genetics, and then what are how how do they metabolize different drugs, right? So this is um, a test that can be used to inform um, nutraceutical and natural therapies as well as um, pharmaceutical interventions, right? To provide more targeted pharmaceutical interventions rather than what I said before, giving a first, second, and third line treatment without actually understanding the underlying uh, predispositions that the person has and then also how well they're able to detox these drugs right. because some people don't detoxify drugs well certain drugs in terms of their mechanism and they end up with really really terrible side effects so mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. it, it helps to address both of those and the whole basis of these genetic tests is that they're actually epigenetic tests so epigenetics in contrast to genetics is how we turn certain genes on and off and this leaves a lot of room for different interventions, whether that's lifestyle, nutrition, supplements, different different interventions where we can really optimize our, the turning on and off of those genes. So w when it comes mm -hmm. down to it, our genes are not a sentence, right? We have the, because of this mm -hmm. whole realm of epigenetics, we're actually able to intervene with very targeted therapies in um, and actually address those predispositions and optimize them. Yeah, that's really huge, especially with, uh, I, we just took the class this summer about uh, genetic SNPs and figuring out if people are methyl cravers, methyl sensitive, and it is amazing how many side effects there are with just those two things that I just mentioned. A lot of it can be mental health, or you can have hormonal problems with it. It's It covers a ton of different problems. Would you consider doing that testing first or is it too expensive that you would only use it on you know after you've tried other options um i don't um recommend it for for every um patient um you know there's no system that i use in particular um you know for determining if it, it, you know if, if someone like qualifies for that test but usually it's if they've taken a lot of medications before and have had negative side effects why did they have negative side effects and then also um family history and you know of of mood disorders and mental illness that 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 points to a genetic predisposition okay. so that's when I, that's when i run it in particular um i would say um i usually start with the therapies first of homeopathy and neurofeedback and then um run the labs later if the person's not responding as well um and then sometimes i never need to to go go to the labs right because they are eclectic labs and they're not always covered by insurance and i know that that's usually a big thing for a lot of people is making sure things are, you know, cost effective in some ways. I know that sometimes it can get more expensive. Yeah, I mean, in terms of finances, like, um, you know, like I would say 
people, it, it, it's cost effective, but people have to be committed. And, mm -hmm. you know, the way I reframe, I, I reframe cost is like, what is it costing you not to get better? Right. And for a yeah, lot of people that cost them point. productivity, it costs them quality of life. It costs them, you know, um, how they show up to their relationships. So, um, you know, I try to just remove costs from the whole equation. Of course, like I don't, um, you know, I, I don't like tooth and nail people for all of their money. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it doesn't, it does involve a, a financial, you know, a, a financial commitment, um, at least in comparison to just going down the conventional route where you can get your pharmaceuticals prescribed by insurance, you know, so people don't, mm -hmm. um, you know, people usually come to me, um, you know, as a last resort, because medications have not worked for them. Yeah. Or, or they um they don't you know and, and there are individuals that come to me because they 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 believe in the natural approach and don't want to be taking medications but a lot of individuals most of them come to me as a last resort mm -hmm. yeah oh i did want to reinforce something you said earlier that naturopathic doctors are not trying to take everyone off of their pharmaceuticals if they need to be on pharmaceuticals especially psychiatric drugs, if they need to be on those. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the whole thing with psychiatric drugs is if someone is responding well to it, they're not having troublesome side effects, I won't even touch it right? Mm -hmm. I'll offer additional therapies. But if someone is having harmful side effects, it didn't help their mood at all. That's when we'll consider, you know, alternatives and a taper schedule. The beauty of neurofeedback and homeopathy is it's not contraindicated with any drugs. When someone is taking medications, there are a lot of contraindications in terms of nutraceuticals and in terms of botanical medicine. So I, you know, to all of those um, listening out there, I don't recommend reading articles online about herbs that are helpful for depression or herbs that are for anxiety if you're taking a medication because a lot of them are contraindicated and can interfere with your neurotransmitters in a very bad way and can lead to you know um, different side effects exactly yeah we were actually talking about that in another ep another episode and while it's lovely that all of this information's out there you still have to seek a qualified health professional to help you with these types of choices because like you just mentioned, there there is a lot of nutraceuticals that have interactions. We were kind of curious. We know that you did some training in Ayurveda, and we would love to hear about it and how you incorporate that into naturopathic medicine. Wonderful. So the way I incorporate Ayurveda into my general ND practice is it really informs how I view the human body. So the whole basis of Ayurveda is different constitutions. It's similar to traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture where there's different elements and those elements determine what our constitution is in terms of what are our predispositions to imbalance and how does our body manifest those imbalances in very specific ways. Um, so it's really um, about addressing imbalances in the body and with Ayurveda, it's lifestyle, it's nutrition, it's and it's, you know, different Ayurvedic herbs. And what's great, what's awesome about Ayurveda is it's incredibly individualized. So one person with anxiety is complete, can, can have a completely different constitutional imbalance than the second person with anxiety, and they're gonna require different treatments. And those treatments, um, the most effective Ayurvedic treatments are actually lifestyle and nutrition interventions. So mm -hmm. one person, I may recommend um, certain yoga poses 
those. I may recommend certain breathing exercises, certain meditations, certain foods to eat. And then another person, I'll recommend different yoga poses, different breath work, different foods to eat. And this is all to correct the underlying imbalances. So how I like to incorporate Ayurveda is mostly lifestyle and lifestyle and nutrition interventions, and then a little bit of Ayurvedic herbs, but it's, it's mostly the lifestyle piece that can really inform individualized treatments based on how someone is manifesting their, their imbalance in terms of imbalances of the elements of air, ether. Air and ether are actually different. And then um, earth, fire, water. Yeah, so there's five in Ayurveda. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And there's three yeah. constitutions. Kata, yes. Pitta and Vata. Pitta and Vata. Yeah. And um, the the different doshas are constitutions. And those constitutions come about based on how the elements are combined, you know, in a particular individual. And doshas are really a way of just viewing the human body and also the entire world, right? So the whole idea with Ayurveda is that we're in a dynamic state of balance between our internal and our external world. You know, what what's within is without, right? So we have... Mm-hmm. The seasons throughout the seasons the the elements change in our own bodies and i do see a lot of um flares in different chronic issues during when the seasons are changing because um we're not always adapting as well as we should be adapting to changes in our environment specifically the weather and the seasons what sparked your interest in ayurvedic medicine mm, um that was a class again. So I took a constitutional assessment, which is a first year class. So in my uh, first quarter of naturopathic medical school, I took a class in constitutional assessment where we learned about these different Eastern medicines that were built on the basis of constitutional imbalances, like traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda. And then we did learn a little bit about homeopathy, but not very much in that, in that course in particular. And I just really fell in love with the Ayurveda aspect of it mm-hmm. and what so I what I really appreciated was like this whole idea that we all have different predispositions and mm-hmm. with those predispositions we can really intervene with our lifestyle to optimize our our predispositions and our natural you know shortcomings what are some of the lifestyle choices choices that you recommend for ayurvedic medicine that are different from naturopathic lifestyle recommendations Mm. So they're not necessarily different. They're just more specific and individualized based on the person's constitutional imbalance. So for example, um, someone with a, a vata imbalance, I'm going to recommend lots of sleep, sleep as much as possible. Someone with a kapha imbalance, I'm going to recommend waking up a little bit earlier. I'm not going to recommend, you know, sleeping less, but I'm going to recommend getting out of bed earlier because someone in a kapha imbalance is going to have more of a tendency towards sluggishness that can mm-hmm. manifest as fatigue mm-hmm. and physical sluggishness. It could always also manifest as brain fog. It can also manifest as sluggish digestion, leading to indigestion as well as constipation. And it's really like a whole realm of different things that can manifest in terms of an imbalance. But even something as simple as like, what time are you waking up and going to bed? Um, you know, and what um, what sort of foods are you eating? You know, um, someone with a kapha imbalance, I'm going to be recommending a lot of bitter and astringent um, foods. Someone with a um, a pitta imbalance, I'm going to recommend a lot of cooling foods, you know, a a little bit more um, sweet foods. 
you know, mm-hmm. and by sweet, I don't mean sugar. I mean like different fruits and um, also some sweet vegetables and grains and things like that, that are, that are considered sweet in, in, in the school of Ayurveda. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's just more, more individualized based on someone's constitutional imbalance, not necessarily different. So I'm never going to be recommending that someone eat um, processed foods and, mm-hmm. and sugar <laughs> and sugar and non-organic vegetables, you know, following the ND approach. Against but principle. Ayurveda. Yeah. But, uh, but mm-hmm. on the, in the Ayurvedic approach, they'll be more specifics based on the person's individual, unique uh, presentation of their imbalance. Okay. And is it like a questionnaire or is it just you looking at the person and deciding on their body shape type? So um, there is a questionnaire, but I don't use it very often. Usually um, I it's based on the person's symptom presentation, based on their predispositions, um, based on how they present in office. So you can, you can learn a lot about a person, you know, through Ayurveda. Um, and then, um, yeah, so it's really just like a collection of their symptoms and then also their pulse. I check their pulse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot can be gathered from, from a pulse assessment, an Ayurvedic pulse assessment. That's so interesting. I would not mind being told to sleep in a little bit more. <laughs> right. Yeah. And based on what I know of, of you, you, you do have a little bit um, more vata. Oh, really? I mean that in a, in a completely, I mean that in a completely neutral way, you know, with doshas, it's not, you know, like one is better than the other. It's right. really just, uh, you know, we all, um, you know, have our different predispositions and that can, um, you know, be the, uh, the greatest blessing and it can be the greatest curse, you know, when we're mm-hmm. not in a state of balance. So that is the elements space and air right vata yes air and ether ether is space ether is empty space Mm -hmm. okay i think i'm kapha so i'm uh, you you can (laughs) confirm that dr price yeah i would say so um you can tell a lot um you know and this is no way to make an ayurvedic diagnosis but Mm, you can tell a lot from how people speak and how they present themselves Mm. so um katarina you have a more like slow laid back um way of speaking stephanie has like a a faster bubbly way of speaking and then i have like more of a direct and fiery way of speaking which because i'm pitta and i would say yeah you're pitta Stephanie's predominantly vata and then you're predominantly kapha but then it's not like the we three have three doshas only... yeah <laughs> yeah this is why so this cool. is such a, a well-balanced podcast we have oh, a, perfect. It's, a, it's a it's a tri-doshic uh, podcast <laughs> there but... we go <laughs> I love it but Never the thing with Ayurveda yeah but the thing with Ayurveda is it's not just one one constitution or one dosha that you have you have a combination of all three otherwise you wouldn't be a living breathing human being because you need all three to Mm -hmm. function um so we just have our own you know like dominant doshas but we're we're a combination of all three because we need all three doshas for the functions in our body yeah exactly that goes with anything too it's never you know there's never a right or wrong. It's just what it is. And that kind of goes with mindfulness. It's just observing what is, you know. Mm-hmm. What you were saying earlier um, really resonated with me because I was reading this book, The Untethered Soul, and it had to do a lot to do with not only mindfulness, but also when you experience a negative, something negative in your life and you hold on to it instead of letting it go, you hold on to it and it goes deep into like your heart or you know your body or whatever you want to say or call it and it stays there until you're able to let it go and 
eventually you can build up all of these, you know, negative experiences and always be kind of triggered by something similar to that in the future. How often do you see that with mental health? Because if we were all in the moment and being mindful, then maybe we wouldn't have anxiety or we wouldn't have depression. We would just be here in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that book, by the way, Untethered Soul. I've, I've read it. Yeah. Um, it's a good yeah, one. I, I see it all the time, all the time. I, I would say like a lot of, um, you know, mental illness, mood disorders, it's due to underlying trauma that hasn't been resolved. And this doesn't mean like a very severe trauma, like going to war, you know, like PTSD. It doesn't have to be someone being raped. It doesn't have to be someone dealing with extreme grief. It could be the trauma of, um, you know, I, just to name an example, um, it could be the trauma of, uh, I don't know, moving from one state to another, mm -hmm. something as simple as that, mm -hmm. you know, but without, um, you know, if, if we didn't have the appropriate tools at the time, we kind of just, you know, picked up and continued and never dealt with like what, what underlying effect that that traumatic event had, um, it, it gets stuck, you know, in the body and that leads to symptoms, mental and, and, um, physical. Yeah. I'm glad you talked about that. It's just really interesting to me how it can manifest physically and mentally. But as we're wrapping up the show, we really want to know what's next for you. And yeah, what's next for you? I would say just continuing to um, build my private practice. I opened my private practice May of last year. So it's been like a year and three months. And that's still very um, young and infantile for a practice. Usually it takes years to really, um, you know, get going, be established in the community, have a very established patient base. But really for me, it's continuing to do outreach through things like this podcast, different um, health talks in the community. I'm happy that that's um, started to pick up again. Now that things have started reopening with the appropriate social distancing guidelines, I can I can start giving talks again in, in the community. Um, yeah, and then and just continuing to learn from my patients and, and my students as a as um, you know a supervising uh, faculty at Bastyr Clinic. Um, just just continuing to learn because really this this uh, medicine is one of constant learning. Naturopathic medicine is one of constant learning. You know, you learn from your patients, you learn from students, you learn from the research that you do on your different patient cases. Mm -hmm. And the, the medicine is always changing as well with the advent of new therapies and new, new research in complementary and alternative medicine. And also a lot, a lot more, um, you know, different blood tests, you know, different other and other lab tests that are coming about to treat these different underlying, you know, imbalances using a functional medicine perspective where it's really about optimizing you know someone's function rather than just treating pathology right well said well thank you so much dr price for joining us today and sharing your story you can find dr price online at www.drpricend.com and that is d-r-p-r-i-c-e-n-d.com or on instagram at price naturopathic and that is P-R-I-C-E-N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H-I-C. And before we close the show, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, comment, rate, review, and most of all, share with someone you know. Thank you so much, Dr. Price. Thank you. This is my pleasure. Bye, everyone.